Welcome back to another Sports Next Door podcast. It is Monday, February 15th. My name is Owen, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my virtual neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Pretty well. Not going to dispute you on the date for this one. I think I learned my lesson last time. <laughs> definitely check the calendar before and definitely not listen to that friend on anything like that again. Uh, but I'm doing well. It's just, I mean, as well as anyone's doing, I guess. Another few days tick by and that much closer to, I don't know. Well, we've got a holiday today. Yeah, and happy family day. Thank you. Back back at you. And we've got our, at least I'm in reading week right now, so I'm set for a less busy week. Still working, but less busy. And um, hopefully during that time, I can catch up a little bit more on the sporting world. Had some great action going on this weekend. And we're going to talk a little bit about it today. We got a little bit of tennis talk, uh, some combat corner, some NBA and some NHL stuff to, to get through. And uh, pretty loaded show, but I'm looking forward to, to breaking it down with you for the next couple minutes, couple hours, however long it takes us. I got a little bit more time today, so I'm willing to go longer. Yeah, I uh, spent... I guess the weekend catching up on the or following the tennis and the UFC. So I've got like a top heavy load and then you'll be carrying the back for this one. So, okay. Sounds good. So we will start on the ATP tour uh, where the Canadian representation has officially all been uh, knocked out of the tournament. Unfortunately, with Raonic falling to Djokovic and, uh, Felix falling to Katsarov and uh, did you catch either of those what what kind of analysis do you have for those matches yeah I didn't catch the Dvojic Raonic one I mean that one was a pretty foregone conclusion I think as long as Jokovic was healthy enough to step onto the court he's now 12 and 0 against Raonic I I think uh, he did it in four sets not so yeah, I not a lot to say. Disappointing, but if uh, he if Novak can come back after that amazing third round he had and go on to win, that's I think going to be one of the more phenomenal Grand Slam runs in his career. So disappointing to see Raonic out, but quarterfinals is or yeah, fourth round is kind of around his ceiling in the grand slam so it's not a huge surprise either way really yeah I, I would expect a little bit more out of Milos in this situation with a potentially injured opponent and the serve that he has probably would have had to force Djokovic a little bit more laterally and uh disappointing loss but there's only sometimes it's just a matter of matchup and I think that's what it came down to I mean, no one really matches up well against Djokovic. That's why he is one of the top players of all time. But yeah, just a tough one for, for Milos. And it sets up a great match in the quarterfinals between Djokovic and Zverev uh, out of Germany, uh, who are seated one and six in the tournament. So it should be a fun one. Yeah, on the more disappointing half, we had uh, Felix Sojaliasim dropping in a five-set matchup against the Katsarov, who's having a phenomenal run, who was hitherto unheard of, unthought of, absolute dark horse. Um, it is, I'm not 
I was watching this at the same time I was watching the fight. So I had my laptop open with the tennis on and I was had the fights on my TV. So in between rounds, in between fights, I'd mute the television and focus a little more on the tennis. And I mean, Felix looked like everything was going smoothly for him. We took the first two sets. I think he took the second one, 6-1, serving just as well as he had. Um, he got himself into a bit of trouble, I think, early in the first set on his serve, but like undug himself out of the hole, breaking and two comfortable leads. And then that the consistency of getting himself into trouble remained, but I think Katsurov stepped up his game at the right time and then Felix dropped his game at the wrong time in the third set and just started to waver. And I'm not really sure whether how much to praise Katsurov and how much to kind of dunk on Felix for it. I think uh, Katsurov's next game will be indicative of that. I'm not sure who he's facing. but Grigor Dimitrov, who's also on a bit of a, a world beater run of his own. He, he beat uh, Dominic Tiam in, the, oh. in his last match. So it should be a matchup of two kids trying to prove something. Should be good. Wow. And yeah, I mean, Felix is still so young at 20 years old. It kind of, he was on such a great run. And going into the third set, I was ready in our show notes to type, Felix hasn't dropped a set yet in this tournament. Then he drops the third one. Okay, fair enough. He still got another one. Then he drops that. And then momentum's so huge in tennis. When, when you go up two, but then go down the next two, there's so much pressure on you to battle back and win that fifth set, even though in theory it should be 50-50, just when your back's up against the wall like that, it's so tough. And yeah, Katersov, I think, just figured out uh, Felix's game and made him uncomfortable. And he wasn't able to get the serve going like he does when he's playing at his best, wasn't able to break with those forehand power shots and didn't those crazy athletic plays didn't quite click. So disappointing exit in the third round. Fourth round for Kader, for Ojeda-Sim. Uh, I think it ties his Grand Slam best. So looking forward to the next one and hoping to see him break it. I, yeah, the, the future's bright for young Canadian tennis, for sure. Absolutely. This is a great kind of kickoff to his... Uh, 2021 campaign obviously you'd like to see him in the quarters as kind of his floor if he's the 20th seed you want to be kind of around that top 16 if you're looking to improve but it's a good start to the season and he's only going to get better as it goes along because he's so young and still learning the circuit and how to match up against each one of these top players that it, this is just another great couple of reps for him to to take under his belt and him and Shapoor and go back in the lab and and come out better and and just they have there's no ceiling for these two guys so it's really exciting to be following them going forward yeah on the woman's side uh i know did you catch any of the osaka match we have in our notes here uh but (laughs) i did i did get to catch the most of the final set where as osaka dropped the first set 
came back, took the second one, and then uh, her opponent, Muguruza, who I don't know a lot about, but she's won some Grand Slams in the past. I think she was top-ranked at one point. She's fallen a little, but she was playing solid tennis, uh, put Osaka's back up against the wall. She was up 5-3 and went up in the game 40-15 with a double match point. Osaka's serve and Osaka had looked shaky on that service game to that point, but back against the wall, she's just too good. Uh, pulled it out with steadied her serve, not like world beating aces or anything, but good enough to grasp the service advantage you should have in games and then just mixing up the shots so well the deep corners hard forehands backhands drop shots where she needed it and then just broke Muguruza twice like it was like it was easy for her like she hadn't been struggling that whole set to do so um fantastic performance from probably the best female player in the world right now well, I'm sure there will be a couple, who, a couple others who'd have something to say about that, uh, two of which being Simona Halep and Serena Williams, of course, who will be matching up uh, in the quarterfinals in just a couple, or tomorrow, which should be an awesome matchup between the number two seed and uh, Serena, who should be great to watch. I guess, like, Americans are doing well in this tournament. We've got Jennifer Brady moving through and Jessica Pagula, who's un seated in the tournament uh shelby rogers just fell in the fourth round to one seated ashley barton but shout out to our uh, friends south of the border who have got some major representation uh in these quarterfinals at the australian open yeah i'm i guess sunday after saturday was kind of full of sports for me so sunday was like my off day but looking forward to getting back into it and throwing it back on Absolutely. All right, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back for some combat corner. And we're back. Max, take me through UFC 258 on Saturday night. Yeah, overall, I'd say it was a everything they could have hoped for in the card. I mean, you look at the placement between UFC 257, the Conor McGregor card, and the upcoming UFC 259, which is going to be headlined by three title fights and Typically, buys don't do too well in between, right before, right after those big ones. So you can only hope for so much for it. But I think they put together a lot of really solid matches on those this card and it pretty well lived up to expectations. Um, two of the fights I was excited for fell through within the last 24 hours before the card started, which was disappointing but the ones that stayed on lived up. So let's get right into it. I want to start with the prelim opener, Chris Gutierrez versus Andre Ewell in that deep bantamweight division. Two talented strikers who were aware of the danger each posed, and that led to a, or started with a pretty hesitant, scarce uh, kickboxing, movement-filled chess match without too too much happening in the first two rounds Gutierrez kind of stole it at the end with a head kicky through which ended up landing with the knee that kind of wobbled Ewell and then Ewell just a little bit better in the second round kind of got enough volume off to take it but Ewell being very careful all fight worrying about the leg kicks and Gutierrez being careful all fight worrying about Ewell's countering if he threw leg kicks too open or tried to 
go with too many shots in a combo. But when there's a fight like that, that kind of starts off slowly, um, I guess there's two ways to look at it. It's like, are they point fighting or are they working towards something? Because the first is really frustrating, but the second one is totally worth it if it pays off in the end. And in this case, it was the latter because Chris Gutierrez, even though he didn't win the second round, landed some nice leg kicks, he, which he had started off in the first round, and it was just money in the bank and all the dividends came in in the third round where you will just couldn't mount any offense of his own because his legs seemed too battered to really plant and throw. He was moving on them, and for the most part, his movement was all right. You could tell he was kind of working through it, but Gutierrez sensed the blood in the water. He sensed that those counter shots weren't there for Ewell anymore, and he started pouring on the pressure. He realized that the leg kicks were doing great for him, so he doubled down on them, landing, I think, more in the third round than he did in the first and second. He just took the fight to him. I think the judges even gave that round to him 10-8. It was very well-deserved. Um, great third round to kind of win the round, win the fight performance. I, I think he's won now four of his last five just with just one draw in there. So great performance from a fighter in this really deep bantamweight division. And he might be knocking on the rankings coming soon. Uh, next fight I want to talk about, Bilal Muhammad versus Diego Lima. I almost said Douglas Lima being uh, Diego's brother, who's the Bellator champ. But no, we're talking about Diego, the UFC fighter, who is not quite as accredited. And uh, big underdog coming into this fight, and it showed Muhammad uh, did lived up to the number next to his name, just taking the fight straight to Diego with great pressure, uh, really accurate hands, backing up that pressure and he mixed in some takedown attempts just to give Diego something to think about I he didn't get a takedown until right at the end in like the last minute of the third round but I think just the level change faints add one more thing to worry about defensively which helps your offensive game that much more when you can fluidly mix it up like that uh, Muhammad looked great with the strikes to the head strikes to the body he got a little away from those body shots, but you saw the cardio of Lima start to wilt in the third round between the mix of the pressure and those body shots. Uh, Muhammad just put, putting it all together more and more every fight. He's really only lost to the very best in the division when he's been matched up against them and everyone else he's beat quite decisively and this was no different, so... I mean, in this crazy deep welterweight division, you aren't going to get the matchups you want all the time. And unfortunately for Muhammad, he went up against Jeff Neal before everyone knew quite how good Jeff Neal is, was, is. Um, he's the only fighter to lose to Jeff Neal who didn't get knocked out, I think was also kind of spoke to where Muhammad's level is at. And... Yeah, I think when you defend your spot in the rankings, you can kind of hope that your next matchup will give you the chance to move up a little. And I mean, the one thing you worry about in Muhammad's game is he really didn't find an answer for the leg kicks Lima was landing and just 
like we talked about, sometimes those can be so much trouble for a fighter. You never know if the next one's really going to cripple them. Um, he was, he did check a few, but he couldn't, he couldn't find the timing to like land a bomb right as Lima looked to throw, which that was kind of all Lima had offensively for him. So you'd, when he's not hiding them behind strikes, you'd kind of hope to see them find a way to time it, which Muhammad didn't, but he was also winning the rounds comfortably despite those leg kicks. So maybe he figured, hey, these aren't great, but I can take a few more of these and it ain't broke, so I won't fix it. Either way, uh, great performance by Muhammad. Uh, worthy, again, just one of those fights on this card that kind of fun to watch, high level, uh, lived up to everything I hoped for when I saw the matchup on paper. The prelim headliner, a bit more of an eyebrow raiser, Anthony Hernandez going up against Rodolfo Vieira, the very accredited black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, Hernandez with the huge upset, taking it by submission, I believe the odds were at plus 3,000 for this. And this, you've seen this uh, at heavyweight kind of with Alexio Linick. When you're a one-trick pony and that trick is jujitsu, then the fighter is going to have the whole camp to get ready to prepare to survive those position, positions, especially the strength style fighters, excuse me. So those really strong jujitsu artists who have, are able to just grab a hold of you and muscle your their way to the mat and then instantly get into some sort of choke position, especially where they use the arms. That That's all the fighter has to prepare for really and just figure out the little nuances on how you create enough space, enough breathing room to get through that position. And then once you do that, once that one trick has been survived, there's kind of nothing nothing left on offense. And that's more or less exactly what happened with this fight. Uh, Hernandez in an arm triangle early, which Vieira won his last two fights by early in the first round. So everything looked like it was going as usual, but couldn't quite find the submission. And then from there, it was just Hernandez's show. Vieira too gassed, really, to mount anything on his own. I thought the commentators were giving Hernandez grief for grappling with Vieira, but every position that Hernandez was in was to his advantage. A lot of, like, sprawl-out type positions where Vieira was flat on the mat and Hernandez was on top of him and just wearing on him which I think was brilliant in this case because it just made Vieira that much more tired as soon as it got to the feet uh, just give him at hell landed some elbows, hooks I think a knee in there and then ending it with a submission is just such a fun feather in the cap and uh, that's probably a fight you know he'll be telling his kids grandkids about someday like let me tell you about that time grandpa submitted a black belt with my like purple belt or whatnot I think maybe he gets promoted to purple belt after this fight moving on to the main card Julian Marquez with a fantastic showing um, coming up like against Maki Patolo, a Hawaiian fighter with a crazy chin whose nickname is Coconut Bombs. 
that kind of tells you what to expect, but Pitolo flipped the script and came out grappling heavy and just kind of surprised Marquez in the first round. Uh, not like a crazy amount of damaging offense, but just dominant grappling. Uh, Marquez kind of looked to go to the grappling early in the first round and just didn't set up the attempt very well. Pitolo reversed it and was kind of happy to ride that for the rest of the round. Um, second round, I no excuses for Marquez, but Pitolo just the better grappler. I mean, there were some striking exchanges. The second round went better for Marquez, but I'd still score it for Pitolo. Marquez had kept looking for that guillotine attempt, which he got close looking on a couple, but couldn't quite find. And then the third round, James Krause minced no words with Marquez, telling him, you need a fucking finish. Let's go. You fucking got this. You get this. And uh, it was fantastic. Marquez came out and just wilting pressure, never giving up on himself when Patolo forced a grappling exchange and took him down. Marquez just right back up, right back to his feet and right back onto that striking pressure, which again, knees, punches, gets his back against the cage, forces a bad shot, which the thing the Patolo corner was most worried about was a bad shot leading to a guillotine attempt. Uh, Marquez looks for the guillotine, doesn't quite find it, but has him on the feet in a sprawl position, switches to an anaconda and cinches it up very nicely to get the finish in the third round for the comeback. I didn't check the judges' scorecards, but I'm almost certain they had uh, Patolo up two rounds. So two more things to make this performance even more amazing for Marquez. First, he was coming off like a 31, 32-month layoff from some type of injury. I don't quite understand, but something about the arm freezing up. One of those that's still to this day a bit outside of the realm of medicine to heal 10 times out of 10. Kind of just have to put your trust and hope that it'll work out and... I mean, so fantastic for Marquez that did. And he gets to come into the octagon and have this kind of, I guess, double comeback almost in a sense. But uh, his favorite moment of the night probably came a bit later when uh, in his post-fight interview, he used his call out to try and get the attention of one Miley Ray Cyrus for Valentine's Day. And I don't know if you heard about this, but she replies on Twitter, shave an MC into your chest and I'm all yours. So <laughs> congratulations on all three fun fronts to Julian Marquez. Um, yeah, that was a pretty wholesome, fun moment. Great to see. Uh, tough if you're Patola, though. I mean, that fight looked like it was yours, looked like it was in the bag. He had added this new facet to his game. It was going well. I think his coach, like, temporarily left the room in, like, frustration and upset. All right, moving on to the next fight. This one was moved onto the main card after the Green Miller one fell off. Uh, Brian Kelleher versus Ricky Simone. You kind of knew what you were going to get with this one. Two great bantamweights who are always going to move forward, but the pressure of Simone is just something else. Uh, and the grappling credentials are just way higher, and the cardio tank is just a little out of this world so 
that wasn't really too surprising. The big question was, is Kelleher going to find the guillotine for me? And he, I think it was one of those, uh, you put one foot in one door, one foot in the other door, and you get caught halfway, and that just does you no favors. Because every time Simone looked for a takedown, it was like Kelleher stopped, thought about the guillotine, and then was like, no, I don't quite have the angle, I don't quite have the position. And by the time that thought process had worked his way through, his butt was about to be on the mat you just so many times you saw the takedown came he looked for the hand position to get it and then gave up on it but and it was just too late for him so was it going to be his best friend or his worst enemy i think it was his worst enemy i mean simone just a such a strong high level grappler with endless cardio it's a nightmare for almost anyone at any division unless you've got like ridiculous jujitsu takedown defense or knockout power. And none of those came through for Kelleher and just three rounds of Simone doing what he does. The grappling, not too surprising in the Simone Kelleher fight, but pretty surprising result in the Gaslam Heinish fight with uh, Heinish coming out that hurricane pressure looks to neutralize Gaslam's uh, danger on the feet early by going to a takedown. And then from there, Gaslam kind of flipped the script, reversed the grappling position pretty quickly, and then just chose to dominate in the wrestling from there. Um, reversing that early position, and then from there, just looking for his own takedowns whenever the clinch or striking on the feet got dominant enough for him kept it on the mat pretty convincingly, worked the positions well, stayed on top, and didn't really give Heinish a chance to get in this fight. I mean, Gaslam's wrestling back background isn't something he's really leaned on much throughout his UFC career, and he has had troubles with like the Chris Weidman, the Neil Magnes, the guys who were bigger than him and wanted to wrestle him, so it wasn't shocking Heinish looked to take it there it was surprising to see Gaslam it wasn't even like a 50-50 grappling fight it looked Gaslam made it look pretty effortless to be the better grappler um so if he's going back to that that's he talked about the training with Benil Dariush so the right influences and if he can mix that into his hook and stand-up game makes him that much more dangerous that much more of a problem so great performance by kelvin gaslam to stop a three-fight skid which might have dropped him out of the rankings and remain puts him kind of in the back of the middle of the top 15 in the middleweight division i think with the guys like a uh Derek Brunson, Edmund Shabazian. Um, I think Brunson's going to be fighting Kevin Holland's another one. So be interesting to see him match up against the guys right around there. Moving on to the co-main event, Macy Barber versus Alexa Grasso. It was a ceiling test, ceiling check for Macy Barber against Alex Grosso, the UFC experienced and tested striker. And we saw the ceiling of Barber last Saturday night against the 
accomplished striker when Barber goes up against girls like Jillian Robertson to my uh, sadness who aren't strikers or Hannah Seifer, JJ Aldrich who are a little older or not too old, not experienced enough one way or the other. Um, the athleticism and the confidence of Barber just enough to walk forward and wilt those girls against the cage and find hands. JJ Aldrich, I think, was uh, Barber's toughest test in that three-fight winning streak, Her, she being the older one with Cyphers being the not-so-old one. And Barber just struggling to replicate that against uh, Grasso, who just she's been in the cage enough times she's done the kickboxing footwork drills enough times that she can just maintain distance not bite on the feints and use her own feints to keep barbara at distance and then time barbara when she walks in too recklessly that was more or less the story of the fight some great clinch work as well from Grasso, even when Barber had her up against the cage, Grasso was landing the heavier, better clinch strikes, elbows, knees. She stung Barber a couple times. Macy never gave up. So when we say where her ceiling is, important to add that. The third round was her best round. I think Grasso maybe even a little surprised. Macy still had so much left in the tank and so much willingness to walk forward because Grasso wasn't quite able to make her pay in the third round as she was in the earlier ones, but still not enough. Uh, Barber needs to figure out how to get a little more technical because she was either all the way in and getting tagged on and read by Grasso or 10 feet out throwing at air um, with absolutely no threat posed. So the future may be bright for Macy Barber, but certainly not the present um she's going to need some more fights some more time in the gym before she works her way up to being the fighter that she's been telling everyone that she is and will be all right for the main event kamara usman versus gilbert burns i guess i owe uh kamara usman a bit of an on-air apology because i called a snooze fest a clinch wall and stall type fight and no Kamar Usman came out to fight in what's my probably my favorite championship performance from him or scratch that just favorite performance from him I mean not just apples and oranges from the Colby Covington fight so hard to even compare it to this one but he decided the place where he would beat the Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt Gilbert Burns would not be on the cage but in on the open mat in the striking and it was fun to watch especially because he had to weather some adversity Gilbert clipped him early in the fight landed a couple of nice hooks that wobbled Kamaru and made you probably the most you've ever wondered is Kamaru Usman about to get knocked out but he regained his composure, found his distance, started finding his jab later in this first round. Um, Trevor Whitman continuing to show that he might be the best coach in MMA right now because he called it and told him, your jab is your best strike. Your jab is what makes you a champion to Usman. And Usman came out in the second round and just dispelled all that momentum that Burns had taken early in the fight started landing the jab 
established his distance, set up a beautiful overhand counter that he really hurt Burns with. Um, Burns was able to regain his composure, but never quite the same. He was clearly hurt because then the jabs of Usman, Orthodox and Southpaw, both just started to wobble Burns and hurt him more, visibly just looking unsteady on the feet after some of the harder ones landed. And it only took one more round before Burns went down and Usman finished it with a little ground and pound. I At the time, I didn't think the ground and pound was really connecting and I thought it was a little early to stop the fight. But in hindsight, I mean, Burns had been clipped and staggered and wobbled so many times on the feet that I think that probably went into the ref's decision of like, okay, even even if this ground and pound isn't landing all that clean, all that heavy, he's been compromised enough on the feet that if one shot could really put his lights out, and even if it goes back to the feet, it's probably just a matter of time there. So I think Usman did look dominant enough to justify the stoppage. And like I said, the best performance Usman's put on, I think, to date, um, because he made it he made it a fight what what he's done so many times is dictated that the fight will happen in a way that puts him in absolutely no danger even if the result of that is he puts his opponent through absolutely nothing else but this time he was willing to accept some risk and uh, step up his game and just to be clear i don't it's not like I think grappling wholesalely does that. You, if you want to grapple, there is a way to grapple and make it interesting. But Usman just typically, even in the grappling, like unlike Habib, who's always setting up and working towards the next position and looking to damage and wear and tear his opponent down, um, Usman would just stay really heavy on the hip pressure and never really take any posture up risks or like work towards positions in the satisfying way. But Saturday night on the feet took those risks I was actually surprised he wanted decided to do nothing in the guard of Burns he had a couple opportunities but just fantastic jabs and straights for the most part from Usman that really established his distance and used his reach which hasn't really been something we've thought about too much when we're considering the game but what a great way to build or add another tool to that pressure heavy game. If you can keep the establish that range, then it's going to be that much easier to push your opponent back. If they have to worry about the jab and the straight, the punches that cover the most distance. So for his call out after the fight, he said, let's run it back with Masvidal because this guy's talking so much shit. Um, I think he knows that, is probably the fight that well that's the fight that's earned him the most money ever i think that fight did like 1.1 1.3 million pay-per-views because masvidal has just turned himself into such a star and if you give masvidal a full camp especially if they do uh the ultimate fighter which seems to be in the discussion then that fight could be huge um i think usman really does think a lot about how to market himself he never he always talks his opponent up like whether it was colby covington whether it was masvidal what now with burns like always this is the best guy in the division this 
after me. This guy is such a threat. This guy beats everyone else. So I think he is pretty marketing conscientious. But I'm wondering if he's aware of how a lot of people or a lot of his last fights look and a lot of people have looked at his reign thus far of being like so safe and not making it a fight the way uh, you hope to see at the championship level because he's saying let me finish Masvidal I'll get in there and I'll stop him and that's those are the kind of performances he's gonna need if you uh, if he wants to get his name up there and over GSP which in my admittedly biased opinion he is not very close to yet um needs i mean you look at the 5045s that gsp did with like the the non-stop submission attempts on hardy he almost had him twice or the lighting up the face of josh koshek with the jab or the like level of opponent in like the crazy streaking john fitch and i think those wins are fantastic and uh I, I'm curious what, how we'll think about Gilbert Burns in two years because Damian Maya, Tyron Woodley, the two wins that earned him this title shot, I think most of the welterweight top 15 probably beats those two at this point. You You get points for credit for being the first one to do it, but you've got to maintain that dominance. So if he's matched up against like a wonder boy, a Luke, a Neil, interesting to see how Burns fares. Maybe the stand up, not quite as threatening, not quite as high level as we thought it might have been, but time will tell. Overall, really enjoyed the card. It was fun to watch and looking forward to the next one. That's all for this combat corner. We'll be right back to talk some basketball. And we're back. Owen, let's talk some basketball. Absolutely. So the first uh, most recent bit of news that I just want to touch on is uh, last night, Anthony Davis limping off the court against the Nuggets uh, and the Lakers fall to Denver in that matchup between two top three MVP candidates and LeBron and Jokic. Uh, but yeah, the biggest storyline, AD, leaving with what looks to be an Achilles injury. They're saying he re-aggravated his Achilles tendonitis, um, which is a very painful and debilitating injury. And he's getting an MRI on it today to see if there's any partial tear, which would be really, really dangerous for him. So we're hoping that it's just tendonitis. It's sore, swollen. Uh, He'll be out maybe a week or two and and then back ready to go uh, for the Lakers late season stretch. But, tough to see a guy like that go out uh, and hopefully that thinking he doesn't have uh, anything too serious so just waiting on the MRI results maybe by the time you hear this they'll be out but as of right now uh, hoping that he's okay I want to move on to uh, my favorite game of the weekend and that was Saturday's afternoon matchup between the Phoenix Suns and the Philadelphia 76ers now this game was actually pretty indicative of the matchup between the classes of the conferences phoenix sits fourth in the western conference while the sixers are atop the eastern conference and the suns win fairly handily in the end coming down in the fourth quarter uh 
Booker is slowly starting to emerge. I think the more and more he plays with Chris Paul, uh, Paul's going to slowly integrate him into the offense little by little. The pace is different than what he's been used to, and so he's acclimatizing his game now to the different style of offense that Chris Paul likes to run. Uh, Paul was also excellent this game. Booker explodes, and the Suns, like their defense – really steps up. Obviously they have uh, decent matchups at the right positions. DeAndre Ayton is as big a body you could possibly have to put on Joel Embiid and uh, Mikel Bridges has been a fantastic win stopper this season. And so matches up well against either Simmons or Tobias Harris, whoever is kind of feeling it in that moment. And the biggest thing was DeAndre Ayton has a little bit of foul trouble. He's been known for that this season, but the Suns bring in Dario Saric, who was one of the forgotten pieces of the uh, trust the process Sixers back and, and took a lot of heat from Sixers fans for not developing at the same rate as some of the other guys that they had drafted, like a Simmons, like an Embiid. Uh, I mean, they had so many shots at it that they were bound to get a couple of them. And Saric comes in, he's way undersized. He's way too small for a Joel Embiid. But the thing about this Saric guy is he, he fights like hell. And he's got that uh, Eastern European background with some feist to him, with some some spice. Uh, and he obviously immensely outclassed. And Embiid is having probably like, – he's probably the number one MVP candidate and just been fully dominant. And Sarge was a pest and, and bugged him. And he would front him in the post. Then he got a couple deflections on, on post-entry passes, causing turnovers. Uh, just – in the face of Embiid the whole time, didn't let him have anything easy and really like attacked him out on the perimeter and, and made things, his life not easy. Whereas a lot of defenders might sit and let him get that post entry. And when Embiid gets the ball in the post, that's when you've lost that possession. So you really have to fight to make it difficult for him to get the ball in his spot. And that's what Sarch did really well. And the Suns came up with some uh, disruptions led to fast breaks and, and, they put the Sixers away. Really, really interesting game. And it's kind of reflective of the differences between the conferences. As it stands right now, we've got Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Brooklyn, all with respectable records, I would say. Brooklyn 16 and 12, and that's that's good for third seed. But after that, the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference, the Indiana Pacers, is 14 and 13. So it's just a huge drop-off between those top three teams and then everyone else in the East. Whereas 14 and 13, that's good enough for eighth in the Western Conference. And that is where Golden State sits at right now. So just, it's almost comical, the level of disparity between these conferences now. Uh, It shows that even though you've got those top teams in the East, the East still is pretty wide open. Like the Boston Celtics are 13 and 13, and they are fifth in the East, and uh, their team should be doing a lot better, but... It just it, I, I don't know what's going on with the East, but they're just it, it does truly say like if you're a Raptors, if you're an Atlanta Hawks, if you're the Charlotte Hornets, you could make a couple moves and be in this. Obviously, it, it changes come playoff time and those big boys at the top have guys in crunch time that you really don't want to play against uh, uh, Embiid. Uh, Giannis and Chris Middleton then you've got the three-headed monster in Brooklyn of course and uh, Tatum and Brown and obviously Miami's going to be there in, in there at some point with Bam and Butler but 
yeah, as it stands right now in the regular season, all these teams in the East got to be thinking, well, we definitely have a shot to even make it into the, the playoffs. And the way some of these teams have been so inconsistent, you never know. You could have a shot of, a, of an early round upset. Um, so something interesting to follow in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, just you know with the Western Conference, the players that you know are going to be elite come playoff time or you hope are going to be elite come playoff time, I guess, are playing like they're supposed to. Your LeBron, your AD, your Paul George, your Kawhi Leonard, your Nikola Jokic, uh, Steph Curry and Dame Lillard have a much bigger load to carry, but they're doing an admirable job of that. And it's some weird uh, reasoning you get into, like with the Clippers, you have on one hand, like, okay, these two superstars are playing like at the level they're supposed to be playing at, but will they be able to come playoff time? And then in the East, you have like your Jimmy Butler and your Bam Adebayo, your, uh, I guess, Brown and Tatum having great seasons, but it not quite reflected in the Celtics stat line. And it's like, okay, we know these guys are going to be dynamite come playoff time, but can they, what can they do right now? Um, yeah, some- the Celtics definitely have some roster reorientation because Kemba has been inadequate this season, very inconsistent. Their center position, uh, kind of similar to the Raptors. They're not getting much. The difference between the Raptors is they just need a, average center to to because kyle does so much to promote the production of the center position that like literally any one of the celtic centers tice thompson uh and time lord would be so much better than what we have in aaron baines right now it's it's ridiculous because if you just run the rim and you protect it kyle's gonna make you look so good around the rim whereas with the celtics they don't have that true like playmaking point guard in a pick and roll who can make the centers look good Kemba's a little bit more score first and then after that you you fall to like a Romeo Langford uh Trey Waters uh Marcus Smart's injured but just guys who aren't the same level of playmaking Peyton Pritchard's kind of that but he's still a rookie and so he's still figuring out the the speed of the the game so yeah that's that's the difference right there is the Celtics and the Raptors are both teams with underperforming centers but the Celtics, I think, is partially due to their guard play uh, and, and the roster not fitting together, whereas the Raptors, they just don't have a good enough starting center, period. Yeah. Anyway, I do just wonder, at what is there a level of like regular season performance dipping where we start to question the playoff level of the teams then and how close are we to that for these teams or is it still miles away? Yeah, it's it's just such a different season. Yeah. It's really hard to tell. And I I say most of these teams are looking to make a move, but because of the new playoff format, most of these teams think they have a shot. Like one through 14, essentially, in the West is like, I'm not going to trade anyone. Maybe Oklahoma City because they don't want to be in the playoffs. But they're thinking, no, I don't want to trade anyone. This is my shot to make the playoffs for the first time in a while. And and they think they're either they themselves are one or two pieces away or just a a hot streak of 10 games away from being in that nine seed. Right. And so the trade market is much more uh, desolate than it has been in previous years. And so it's going to be difficult for teams to address needs. Uh, And so a team like the Celtics, if you can't address those needs, then you have to be comfortable. uh, As long as you're within those top six seeds, you're, you have to just be comfortable with the roster you have and try and figure things out. Cause as long as you're in that top six, you're not worried about the playing games. 
uh, you're in the playoffs and then you hope your guys like Tatum and Brown can t- take over and, and cause a couple upsets of those top seeds. Okay. That's enough for NBA action. Uh, I'm going to touch briefly on the G league ignite, the undefeated G league ignite three and O now in the double uh, as they played our beloved Raptors 905 on Saturday night and came up with a win due to some great defense. It was overall a pretty sloppy game on both sides. Uh, Gary Payton, the second for Raptors 905 was dunking everything. It was wild to see a couple fast break dunks with ferocious finishes. Uh, Jalen green had a couple alley-oops on the other side for G league ignite. But uh, those three young studs right now who are going to be pretty top, top draft picks uh, played well. Dacian Nix with 25 on his birthday had a half-court heave for a three-pointer to end the, uh, end the first half. And Kaminga with another 23, and he's been looking really, really sharp. And Jalen Green with 21. And, and Jalen Green, I think, this is like – he's the one who's really going to benefit the most from this uh, – going straight to professional because Kaminga and Knicks already have the body types to at least be able to crash and bang with, with some of these uh, fully grown NBA players. I think with Jalen green, he's still growing into his body a little bit. He's oozing with athleticism, but he's missing some of that strength. And so going up against these guys early and trying to, and figuring out how to score against NBA defenses, or at least professional level defenses is going to be really, really beneficial for him once he's finally drafted and, and, and gets into the NBA. The one, obviously, the, it's a G League, and there's going to be ups and downs, and, and the Ignite might lose their next six. But uh, the thing that I really loved that I forgot about, and I think it's even more prevalent in the Gubble, is you can hear everything. And in the NBA bubble, you could hear stuff, but also because of the announcers and the sound and, and the full production of it, they were trying to tune out the benches a little bit. So you could hear the bench's reaction, and you could see them jawing but it wasn't the same because just the energy was different and there was a little bit more like crowd noise. Whereas in this G league bubble, there's basically no crowd noise because there's not big crowds normally at G league games. And so you can actually definitively hear the words that they're saying. There was a moment. It was fantastic in the game I was watching and this guy attacks a rim and he missed and, and someone on the court yelled, he don't finish. And you could definitively hear it. And then uh, there was like a loose ball rebound and the same guy pulled it away and then got the layup and won. And he went, he don't what? <laughs> it was fantastic. Like just a great moment that you'd never hear in the game, but they're just like back and forth. You could hear guys like, like get that out of here, talking to each other, a ton of and ones that you hear those guys, of course. Uh, but I just, I love the, the vocab because it's, I'm, it's been so long since I've played pickup basketball or at least intense pickup basketball, or even just gone somewhere where you're watching basketball live and hear that. Cause the guys talk to each other all the time. So it's fantastic to get a lens into what that's like in a game. And it makes you realize truly like how competitive these guys are and what, and like a completely different level that they're on. And you can come hear that coming through a little bit in the way they interact with one another. And I thought that was really cool. And I enjoyed that. Uh, out of the gobble. So looking forward to watching more of those games as they head towards their uh, G League playoffs. It's going to be a really accelerated two-month stretch. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we will come back to select our All-Stars as we will find out what they're actually going to be in the NBA later on this week. 
And we're back really quickly to walk through uh, the Sports Next Door podcast first ever all-star uh, selection for any sport, uh, but we'll be doing this for the NBA and then probably for the NHL once we get closer to that time. Uh, still don't understand why the NBA is doing an all-star game, but we do have uh, enough data now that we know what some of the early returns are. And of course we have our own selections. Uh, the all-star game is typically something where offense is rewarded a little bit more over defense. And in my opinion, I think you should be rewarding guys who contribute to winning, but the all-star game is something that players get rewarded a little bit more for statistics as opposed to the success of the team. And so you might say some differences come out in what we are saying compared to what actually comes out uh, when the voting happens. Yeah. It's something I noticed with the NBA probably more than almost any sport, maybe not so much football, but like the, the distinction or the category, the tier of all-star means something when they talk about players, they say he's an all-star. Kyle Lowry is a six-time all-star. That like I never hear in the NHL like any player referred to with uh, the category of all-star to like try and distinguish where they are. So it does interest me with the NBA that 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 is kind of a way they separate the top players in the league from the rest with this distinction. So it does, I think, actually seem to matter more than other sports, which makes it that much more important to have a proper selection criteria. Absolutely. And and this year especially, I think it means more because the level of talent in the NBA is probably the deepest it's ever been ever in the history of the league. Just so many guys, so many top guys who are just immensely talented. And obviously the scoring numbers are on pace to be what we've ever, like we've never seen before, especially with the pace and space era now with the three point shooting and all that. But it's really impressive. If you are one of the, it's basically saying you're one of the best 24 players in the league because they do 12 on each side, as opposed to a full NBA roster 15. I think in previous years, uh, especially in those like 2000s eras, where you have you you have your like top ten guys, and then you have a couple of fringe guys who make it in because story narrative, or have just having a solid like basically points season or rebounding season. But I think now is like with the number of guys putting up crazy numbers, the number of guys with crazy usage rates. There's so many guys that are going to be worth like I have eight locks in both conferences, and then I've got about ten guys for the last four spots. So you're really, you're going to snub someone. So it, it does make the all-star classification in itself much more valuable. I would say, especially in the West because of how much better that conference is and has been for many, many years consecutively. Okay, let's get right into it. We will start with the Eastern Conference and I have my eight locks. Max, you tell me if uh, any of these are not locks for you, but I have Kevin Durant. Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, Bradley Beal, Kyrie Irving, Bam Adebayo, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown as my locks. Yeah, the only one I'd struggle with is, uh, we talked about this a bit before the show, but Kyrie Irving, mainly because less games played, I think you, I'd, um, like I said, all-star means something. So if I was going to pick one of the names on that list, it would be the guy who 
maybe all-star on the court, but not acting like an all-star off the court, especially when he is off the court and there is a Nets game going on. But the best way to shut everyone up is just to play the game well, and he's done that pretty well over this last stretch. So I'm uh, not... That one I can see being a bit disputable, especially because I'm really impressed that with... uh, another Nets player who's in your all-star bubble, James Harden. Maybe we can transition right to there. Um, The other thing we were talking about the show is the change in his stat line since he moved to the Nets. I'm really impressed with what adjustments he's... I don't know if he's made them or just being on the Nets. It's been such a natural unconscious transition, but either way, I love every change in his stat line we've seen. So I... For the high assist numbers, the more consistent showing up on the court, I would uh, award James Harden over Kyrie Irving as a all-star lock. Yeah, so it, it it comes down to your criteria, right? James Harden has only played eight games in the Eastern Conference, or 14, 14. games. Yes, eight in the West. Is that enough to qualify him? to be an Eastern all-star, right? Because it's essentially, you're talking about, I don't know, a guy like CJ McCollum who's injured, who only played 13 games, and he's probably not going to make the team because he hasn't played enough. So do you, it just comes down to, do you think James, obviously he is an all-star and I, it's just unfortunate for him that, or I guess fortunate that he got traded. So you can't, it, it just depends on has he played enough games for him to qualify? Because if he de- if you think he has, then he immediately is a lock for the all-star game. But I don't want to reward a guy who uh, lounged around, asked for his way out, then got his way out and hasn't played enough games. Obviously, he's an all-star, but I just don't know if I can just award that to him over some of these guys who have played and been such important parts of their team this entire season and played almost every game. But you still have <laughs> as a lock. It's what's cracking me up. Yeah, so that is the other thing is you, you can use that same argument for Kyrie. The Brooklyn Nets have played 28 games. He's played 19 of them. Uh, he statistically is also a lock. He's averaging 27.5 points. He's averaging six assists and and almost five rebounds and shooting 50, 40, 90, which is incredible percentages for him. Uh, yeah. Both of those guys statistically are lock. It's just, what's your cutoff for games played. And if we want to go for a percentage that actually might help us with our conversation moving forward, or we just go on a case by case basis. Yeah. For me, I guess maybe I'm setting the bar too low, but there is still something to be said for me for like, showing up and doing what's in your contract and even if Harden's running his mouth off the court um making problems in the locker room like I guess at least he did the bare minimum and showed up and played and didn't like cross his arms and sit on a tent and tantrum whine his way out so I I guess I'm trying to it, it is setting the bar so disappointingly low but I guess at least he played is what I'm trying to say. Um, As for the East versus West, I I don't, I got to me like an all-star is an all-star. It's a distinction in the league, which is difficult with the disparity we've discussed in East versus West. But if you, 
I don't know that it makes sense to uh, disqualify anyone who moves between the two conferences throughout the season. Okay. Then that puts Harden as our ninth lock. Uh, I believe he's going to get voted in. So in the end, it, it's consistent with what the fans are voting and what media will probably go with. Uh, so that leaves three spots for the following players. Demonis Sabonis, Nikola Vucevic, Julius Randle, Gordon Hayward, Jeremy Grant, Zach Levine, Trey Young, Fred Van Vliet, Chris Middleton, Ben Simmons, and Colin Sexton. Three spots for all of those guys. This is what I'm saying. It's incredibly difficult. The first kind of group of guys I want to talk about are Demonis Sabonis, Nikola Vucevic, and Julius Randle. And they all are kind of varying situations. Sabonis is the most important player on a Indiana Pacers team that sits fourth in the Eastern Conference. Uh, he was an all-star last year. Statistically this year, similar numbers. But the team has struggled a little bit. And with the emergence of Malcolm Brogdon and uh, some production from other pieces on that team, he's fallen kind of into the background again. He had such an incredible start to the season. And I remember shouting him out for Indiana's hot start. But I just, I don't know if his game is flashy enough and if he has done enough to really put himself ahead of some of the other guys on this list. Uh, Nikola Vucevic is basically the only player left on an Orlando Magic team that seemingly has been knocked off one by one by a hitman. Uh, and they're all nursing various injuries. Uh, it's basically like they wanted to opt out. They couldn't. So they all went around and banged each other with baseball bats to give themselves excuses. And Vucevic missed the memo and arrived and said, oh, I've got Frank Mason and Gary, whatever his last name is, as my as my starters. Uh, feel really bad for him. But he's been putting up incredible numbers. I think he should be on the trade market because his salary is manageable for teams and would be a really interesting swap uh i yeah it, vucevic is definitely a guy who uh, has been an all-star a couple years in a row now and is it comes back to that argument of do you value winning do you value production or in vucevic's case do you value being literally the only guy doing anything on a team uh the last guy in that group of kind of bigs is julius randall who is probably the best player on the Knicks who are a middling team. They play decent defense. Uh, he had a great start to the season. His numbers have dipped in traditional Julius Randle fashion. Uh, he turns the ball over a ton. He has lowered the turnovers. Uh, the assists are great. He's been playing really well in the post. Um, I just don't know if he's done enough to earn a spot over some of these other guys but I do think he warrants being in the conversation. So I would say to you, Max, I know you're not super familiar with all these guys. They're all very fringe, but you probably have to pick one out of the three here, uh, Sabonis, Vucevic, and Randall. Yeah, I, I fall to the, you give the credit to winning and go with uh, Sabonis. Okay. That seems fair to me. Uh, I, I personally probably would side a little bit with Vucevic because this Orlando Magic team actually did start out winning when their team was healthy, minus Jonathan Isaac, but since then have lost 
uh, Aaron Gordon for a number of games, Cole Anthony for a number of games. Uh, yeah, it's the, the injuries are too. I don't want to walk through the, all the injuries, but um, it's tough for him when he has to do everything by himself. And Orlando's going to really fall out of the playoff picture with the injuries that they have experienced. So it's unfortunate. If I were them, I'd be looking to sell on Aaron Gordon, on Evan Fournier, on Nikola Vucevic uh, to try and get more assets because they do have some some solid young pieces in in a Cole Anthony and a Jonathan Isaac, uh, in a Chubo Keke. Uh, so this is a team that, and and of course Markel Fultz. So this is a team that has some young guys, and and if you move Vucevic, you could get a ton of assets, and there are some great prospects in this draft. So maybe that's what you're looking to do as the Orlando magic, but yeah, I'll go with Sabonis on winning. We just might have to keep that same consistency as we move on to some of these other guys. Well, it, it's also about how much of a statistical disparity is there and how much of that disparity is going to be due to usage rate around talent. So for me, Sabonis and Vucevic are close enough in stats and Sabonis being surrounded by guys like Brogdon, whereas Vucevic being kind of the last man standing, you you expect Vucevic, you just get a few more touches on the ball. So when the stats are that close, because I will later on the line, maybe in a couple cases, value stats, and one name in particular will come to mind. So I don't know, I'll, I'll uh, caveat it with saying that the points have to be close enough for me to value winning the stats. We move along. Uh, Two guys I wanted to shout out that I think are warranted in the conversation, probably won't get in, are Gordon Hayward for Charlotte. Uh, People were worried about his health, uh, worried that he could return to the form that he was back in Utah, way back in Utah. Uh, And he's done a great job for Charlotte. He's played really, really well for them. Um. I think this like it's a team where you've got contributions from a ton of people, but he's kind of their their top guy. If you were to pick an all-star, he's averaging 22 points, four assists, five and a half rebounds, playing really well for them, uh, being a great leader. I just don't know if the stats are good enough to be over some of these other guys. And and there were so many locks at in the front court that it's tough to slot him in because he is classified as a forward. The other guy is Jeremy Grant, who uh, wanted the big money to go be the best player on the worst team in the league. And he got his wish. Uh, So good for him. He's averaging 23 points, three assists, five and a half rebounds. He's getting a ton of touches, uh, doing whatever he wants, playing a ton of minutes for this terrible Detroit Pistons team. It's really bizarre. Uh, I think he's proved that he actually can be a, a solid number one option. I don't know if he would be on a winning team, but it is interesting to see that he has elevated his game immensely uh, because there are a lot of the guys in the league who profiled like a Jeremy Grant, where they'll there be like your three and D quote unquote guys who have more potential, but just never get to show it. And I think he's getting the opportunity to show it, and he's actually coming through, which is really cool to see. So I wanted to shout him out, but I think just the fact that his numbers are a lot based on the fact that he's the only guy on the Detroit Pistons team, similar to Vucevic, but with Detroit, it's just simply that their guys are bad. Um, (laughs) So 
I just don't know if that warrants him a spot over some of these other guys. But I just wanted to shout out Jeremy Grant. Uh, good work this season, dude. I'm happy that you get your shots up and lose uh, whatever, 75% of your games. <laughs> okay, so this is this is probably going to be the toughest one we got to get to. Um, we have a ton of guards for, for three more spots. Uh, we have Zach Levine, Trey Young, Fred Van Vliet, Chris Middleton, Ben Simmons, and Colin Sexton. And right off the bat, I do actually want to say that I think Chris Middleton should be an all-star. Um, he has been now for a couple years in a row, and, and people really have harped on that fact, especially when he has choked in the playoffs the last couple of years. But the dude is fantastic. He's averaging 21, 6-6. Six and six. Uh, he's shooting the lights out of the ball. He's shooting 50, 40, 90 right now. Uh, and is truly like, you could say that Giannis is their best player, but when it comes down to those final two minutes, Chris Middleton is the guy they're giving shots now, especially with Drew Holiday injured. Chris Middleton is the guy who's going to be able to give you a shot. He's that perimeter player uh, in those last two minutes who's going to score the ball for you. And I think that's really, really important for Milwaukee. Uh, advanced statistic-wise, Chris Middleton is is the nerds like dream player uh, besides the fact that he shoots mid-range jumpers, but he shoots them at an incredible clip. So yeah, just, I don't know. Shout out to Chris Middleton. Uh, I actually, I'm going to just throw him in here as an all-star because I think the Bucks, as a second place team in the league deserve two all-stars. We'll get to Philly if they deserve two all-stars because of, them being the number one team in the league, but uh, I have Middleton as our 10th all-star. Yeah, I'll add of uh, everyone in the East who is over 20 points per game, Middleton at the lowest field goals attempted. Yeah, he's just a master of efficiency. Really appreciate his work. So, <laughs> so that leaves us with, I'm going to remove Colin Sexton. I think he's had a great start to the season. Cleveland has kind of fallen off a cliff recently. He He's a tough kid. He works really hard. He scores the basketball a ton. I just don't know if he contributes to winning enough. And he's basically like a lower version of, of Levine and Trey Young. Basically, he's, he, he's on their level scoring-wise, I would say, less efficient. But he just doesn't do the other stuff as well as they do, uh, especially Trey Young with the playmaking. So... Really, we have four guys uh, for two spots, and it comes down to Zach Levine, Trey Young, Fred Van Vliet, and Ben Simmons. Two guys who are offensively incredible, and then two guys who give you less offense, but they give you more playmaking, a little bit more playmaking, uh, and a lot more defense. And so that's where our criteria comes in. Trey Young, I think, leading the East in assists, so... Yeah, I, I'm not sure what who you meant there because the <laughs> defense and the playmaking are. Uh... Yes, I would I would say Zach Levine's playmaking is is lower than Fred VanVleet's nominally. Uh, but yeah, Trey Young definitely a guy who gets a ton of assists. He also is like just <laughs> he touches the ball every possession. The ball doesn't stop going through him. So it's it's tough to evaluate what his point and we you could obviously go with with the advanced statistics. 
with Trey Young right now. I'm sorry, I'm just pulling it up real quick. Yeah, we're both like nonstop <laughs> looking. So Trey Young's 11th in the league in usage rate, um, but five of these guys in the top 11 are are like bench players who come in for the last minute of a game. So Trey Young's really top five in the league in usage rate, and that's something that contributes to his assists. Some of the other guys on that list with him are Bradley Beal, Doncic, Embiid, Giannis, and Steph, and Curry's that that sixth guy behind them. And so the assist numbers are great. Uh, he's averaging 9.4 assists per game. But I just – it's uh, this is the argument. He, he's up the stats from last year, which is why he's probably going to get in. But it was the thing. Beal and him both got snubbed last year from the All-Star game because everyone was saying, you don't play defense. And you're the only one who dribbles the basketball on your team. It's you dribble 60 times and then you kick it for a three-pointer. It's it's James Harden-esque, but but small point guard version. Yeah. Yeah. It's if we're talking about all-star as uh, some level of play, then you have to ask about the defense and how important is that gonna be. And I mean Levine. 28 points per game is a solid argument but the team performance right neck and neck with the hawks the assist not there and nominally like the defensive numbers aren't like jumping off to be significant over trey young so that's where i'm at right now going back and forth between levine and young because i think they're put if stats matter they're putting up like top five in the east and stats and each team is kind of in a similar spot so i feel like one of them gets the spot and i'm going back and forth deliberating between the two but then you also got to throw in fred van vliet and ben simmons because if you look at it from a scoring perspective then levine and or even a purely offensive perspective levine and young are the two that get in however fred van vliet is one of the best point guards in the league at playing defense above his pay grade. He is incredible at getting deflections, getting steals, harassing guys. Uh, he did drop 57, which has to mean something, or 54, pardon me. Um, and then Ben Simmons uh, is a guy who is probably built the best now to guard LeBron James. I don't know if you could really design a better defender. And then against Portland the other night is – one of the best guys in the league at guarding Damian Lillard. And then you've also got, got him guarding Giannis and you've also got him guarding Devin Booker or Chris Paul. He's just so incredibly versatile, 6'10". Uh, he's strong. I wouldn't say he's reached that strength level of a Giannis or a LeBron yet where he's fully grown into his body because he's still so young. But the lateral quickness at 6'10 and the harassment that he can provide – as a guard defender or just like a ball stopper is incredible. And that value is something that is rarely uh, rewarded for all-star selections, definitely for all NBA, but I, I don't know about all-star selections. Uh, so it, it, it is balancing that intangible stuff in this sense, because Ben Simmons really doesn't produce much on the offensive side of the floor. Uh, he'll rebound well, he'll assist well, he doesn't score a lot. He can't shoot. Uh, which really like, will clog things up. So it comes down to what we truly value here out of guys. Because Fred Van Vliet, like, as Raptors fans were biased, 
but without he's been their best player this year and been their most present player even if he's had some inconsistencies he's a guy who can drop 54 or he'll hit the most clutch three in a game or he'll make an assist or make a play in the pick and roll or he'll come up with the clutch steal like some of those intangible things that have meant so much to us this season it's hard to quantify that and and go up against Lavinu Trey who just statistically have blown him out of the water yeah which I I'm happy to split my picks between the two so for me, I'm going to say being the number one team in the conference is worth being rewarded. All the defensive intangibles, I, I, I'm big on assists. I just playmaking matters to me. So I'm going to give it to Ben Simmons over Fred Van Fleet, which is mostly giving it to the 76ers six wins being above the Toronto Raptors. And I'm, I'm still... I'm still struggling between Levine and Young, but I, I'm leaning Levine just for the well-roundedness in the game to be rewarded, but like, or more, I guess, to punish the <laughs> sheer offensive style of Young. Well, well the, the problem is, is Levine really doesn't have much to stand on in terms of defensive argument. He has no. the body type for it, but he truly doesn't play good defense. And so... When you're That's looking why I said at it's more about punishing young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Young might be the worst defensive player in the league. Um, and that's partially no fault of his own, just based on his size. It's really, really hard to play defense at his size. Um, even like a Steph Curry is a little bit taller, a little bit longer, can get steals, but like Trey is just so minute. Um, it's really hard in this day and age to keep himself in front of people on the perimeter and so I don't want to punish him too much for that I would say between him and Levine it comes down to whether you value scoring and like masterful scoring because Levine scores at such a high rate 28 points per game and his effective field goal percentage is one of is up there with bigs which is really uncommon because the bigs like are valued highly in effective field goal percentage because they score around the rim and they score at a high level. And Levine is up there because of he's shooting 43% from three this season, which is incredible. But then Trey young, is just like, he does everything on the offensive side for that Atlanta Hawks team. Like he's their heartbeat. And you could argue cause it's James Harden ball. Cause he is the only one who touches it and dribbles it. But I think just the value that he has there for teams uh, setting everyone else up and getting everyone involved that he actually has my nod uh, as an all-star selection as much as it pains me because I really don't like how he doesn't play defense <laughs> yeah it's I I can't come to a satisfying pick between Levine and Young I you didn't get I don't know maybe you just want to give it to both Van Fleet okay and so I'm <laughs> so I'm looking right now Atlanta is 11 and 15 Chicago's 10 and 15 we'll go Trey Young okay I think that's a good 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 uh cap so our all-stars for the east are Kevin Durant Giannis Embiid Beal Irving Bam Tatum Brown Harden Sabonis Middleton Simmons and Trey Young I'm sorry Raptors fans Hey, it, I, I, just it, give them the break. We're we're actually we're influencing the All Star selection. Do uh, <laughs> make sure none of the Raptors have to participate in that shit show. Exactly. Keep them safe, right? This is, 
the Tampa Bay Raptors this season throwaway uh, in terms of awards and such. They'll be back. Don't worry. Fred will be back next year better than ever. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. (laughs) Move on to the West. Here are my eight locks for the Western Conference. LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Anthony Davis, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, and Damian Lillard. Hard to argue. Yeah. They they are all so special in what they bring. Um, We actually might. Because of AD's injury, I doubt he'll play in the All-Star game. So that actually does give us an extra slot to pick a 13th as someone who will come to replace him. Okay. So I'll actually we'll leave give AD ourselves off. an out. Exactly. We'll give ourselves an extra slot. I don't know if it's going to be that easy, but here are the people that I have on my bubble. We have to pick one of from the Pelicans, Zion or Brandon Ingram, or neither. We have Christian Wood. We have... You could pick one or two out of the three guys, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Mike Conley from the Utah Jazz, or none. John Morant, one of Devin Booker or Chris Paul, or none. De'Aaron Fox, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and DeMar DeRozan. (laughs) That's a ton of guys for five spots. Yeah. Um, Right off the bat, Zion Williamson. He's really high up in the voting uh, for fan voting. His offensive numbers are through the roof. He's starting to hustle a little bit more. He's starting to get more playmaking. I think he gets in as an all-star based on media and uh, fan voting. I don't think if it comes down to the coaches, I don't know if they vote him in, but uh, this is one where he's a kid that's on the rise and I have no problem voting him in. I think he has outperformed Brandon Ingram in that regard. Uh, I don't know how you feel about this. It feels a little bit early to be granting him a status like this, but it's just, he's so like, he's just different. He's just a different kind of player and it'd be really fun to watch him in the all-star game. I'll say that much. Yeah. I, it is a spectacle above all else. And uh, maybe that's another way to settle the Trey Young dilemma that he's one of those spectacle special players uh, and Zion absolutely fits that category and you know he's he's up there with all those guys we're naming in the stats at a fucking 60% field goal percentage so if we're picking from the Pelicans then I'm we still there's I don't know how to settle the winning versus individual performance but I mean the Pelicans are an interesting team the West is you wish you could almost give the West a couple of spots from the East or something to make this easier because there's truly no easy discrimination to make here but yeah Zion just such a special athlete that you want to see him in there and I think the stats are there to justify it. Sounds good. We'll move along. Uh, I want to talk about Christian Wood. He feels a little bit like the Jeremy Grant of the West, but the Houston Rockets actually are a better team and are playing better defense. Christian Wood doesn't play necessarily great defense, but the step that he's taken forward, he was out of the league. He played in Europe. He played in the G League. His story is incredible. And he's come back, and he's put up 22 points per game, uh, 1.3 assists, but 10 rebounds a game. He's averaging 1.8 turnovers, which is not great, 1.5 blocks. Uh, 
but just like a guy who is finally getting his opportunity to shine after being a very uh, underrated player on the Detroit Pistons in previous years. And as a guy who every year has improved after like digging himself out of the mud uh, and now has reached this point where he's in an all-star conversation is just like so fantastic. And I'm very happy for him. I don't think he gets the nod just because it's, he's another one of those guys that's just a high usage rate. And that's why his numbers are so high. He's a great role player to have. I just don't know if he can be the best guy. And I don't know if he's there yet in terms of all-star status, especially in the Western conference. I mean, scratch uh, Paul George from our list of locks so far. And every single one of those you can argue is like a generational talent who will like, be talked about like throughout the history of basketball so there's no room to go looking for diamonds of the rough in the rough when the field is already shining so brightly it's just absurd definitely okay we move along to the best team in the league best record in the league utah jazz uh who have now won seven in a row after their one loss, splitting up their two big win streaks. Uh, they crushed the Celtics. They uh, come back and, and, and beat the Milwaukee Bucks. And the ball movement's incredible. There's a highlight where uh, Royce O'Neal threw a pass way out on the, on the edge to uh, Bogdanovich, who caught it. And he was getting closed out, and he was falling backward. He threw a behind-the-back pass in the air to the corner for Mitchell, who then... Uh, got closed out on whipped across the pass to uh, Joe Ingles who shot was going to shoot and then found Gobert inside for a dunk. It was just like an incredible, they, they move the ball so incredibly and their whole team is like one connected string that moves in synchrony and Gobert is so, so, so important on the defensive end. That's where the, we have to like dig into the criteria again here is his value is unquantifiable on the defensive end but guys just don't shoot at the rim because he's there so it's not even like he's getting the block stats it's more just you don't go in there because he he is so intimidating and in terms of screen assists the nerds go crazy for Rudy Gobert he's consistently in the top of the league in screen assists because he opens up so much space whenever he rolls to the rim defenses have to collapse and then you've got all around the arc 40 percent three-point shooters that just knock it down and a lot of that is because of him rolling to the rim. He's been all-star before once. He's been defensive player of the year twice. He's a guy that his value is so hard to measure. There are some people talking about him for MVP. I, I wouldn't go that far. But that is just kind of the value. Like It depends on what you value for an all-star game. And uh, then you've got Donovan Mitchell, of course, who's probably their best scorer. And then you've got Mike Conley, who is a guy who's never made an all-star team. He's probably the best player to never make an all-star team. And do we want that to be his legacy? Like there's at some point you kind of have to reward him for the incredible career that he's had. And he hasn't made an all-star team. And this is probably his like biggest renaissance year after he struggled last year in the new system. But now him and Gobert have great chemistry because he's such a talented player. He's been able to figure it out. Uh, the floater's back. He's been shooting great. He's been setting people up. He's injured now, but I, I it's, it's so tough I between these guys because they are the best team in the league, but you could honestly not name any of them to the all-star team. 
based on just the spread of production. Yeah. I mean, you, the argument, everything you said just now makes me pretty compelled to go Mitchell and go bear. I, I mean, I'm not gonna consider any year other than this year and trying to pick one and you can make one intangible pick and everything you said about Gobert justifies it. I'd love to see uh, attempts in the paint for teams like their average throughout the season versus attempts in the paint against uh, the jazz on any given night. Maybe that would be a way you could try and measure the impact of Gobert. Uh, Mitchell kind of, like you said, the best scorer on the team and nominally kind of the face of that team in many ways and doing what he's got to do and carrying the load scoring. I mean, players like Clarkson, players like Conley, uh, the ring will be their reward. But when, when we're picking all-stars, I mean, two is stretching it already. So that's where I'm going to. Okay. Sounds good. We'll move on uh, to the comparison of three young point guards who are really taking a step forward this season, Ja Morant, De'Aaron Fox, and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I don't know if I give the nod to any of them. If any of the three, it would be Morant, just because of how important he is to his team as a whole. I think Fox gets contributions from other guys on his team, and I would say SGA falls victim to a weaker team where he just isn't putting up the statistical numbers that rival some of these other guys. He's definitely scoring the ball at a great rate. Uh, But I would definitely go Morant. Morant has been injured, so it is uh, tough to (laughs) lock him in as one as well. But definitely a group of guys who are around the same level of production and same age and stage of their careers. Um, so I I want to touch on them. I don't know if any of them win the spot, but guys that are definitely in the conversation. The two that I would have for our final two spots here in the West is... The final two being with AD out? Yes, yes. Otherwise, we only have one left. Yeah. Uh, I would go Chris Paul because I think at this stage in the season, he's been more important to what the Suns have done. Uh, he's turned DeAndre Aiden into an, a great offensive center. Uh, he's turned a lot of those other guys into great offensive players. I think Devin Booker, of course, is going to end up being the most important guy on that team, especially when it comes to playoff time. But Booker has had to make an adjustment and get used to this uh, new <laughs> – Sun's play style and I think Booker is going to be an all-star as soon as next year and and for many years going forward after that but I think Chris Paul has been more pivotal to what the Suns have been doing uh he can completely controls the pace of their games he turns it on and off when he wants to the assist numbers are fantastic and whenever he wants to he scores or is one of the like most clutch players in the league he's just really really good and it's another one of those guys who maybe doesn't blow you out of the water stats wise like 17 points eight rebounds but all of those are incredibly meaningful stats 
it's not like a Trey Young where he dribbles 18 times and then he gets doubled and kicks it for an open three. It's like Chris Paul has to weave in and out of the pick and roll, look off a defender and then find an open shooter in the corner uh, or make an incredible pocket pass to DeAndre. And like they just, his stats hold more value and it's hard to quantify that, but I'd go Chris Paul. Any, any, uh, any naysay on that? Oh, <laughs> Hard to argue. I mean, he again, I'd almost lean just if we're going to be giving two spots, give them both to Booker and Paul, which I guess discounts a lot of other players, but reward winning in that crazy deep Western conference. I don't know. It's, it's well, a so tough. That's, that's the last player we have to get to, right? Because if we're going to reward winning, you kind of got to reward the fifth best team in the West, the San Antonio Spurs, whose best player this season has been DeMar DeRozan. Pardon me, the sixth best team in the West. But all those other top teams in the West have their all-star. And San Antonio, who is definitely overperforming so far this season, has gotten maybe DeMar DeRozan's best all-around season he's ever played. He's averaging 20 points, so the scoring's down, but he's averaging seven assists and five rebounds a game, seven assists. Was DeMar ever near that in Toronto? No. And uh, just the stuff that he does for this team is so important. Like down the stretch, he is the most clutch player on their team. He's the guy who gets everyone involved. Uh, a guy who's, again, another guy's hard to quantify his impact, but he's shooting 48% from the field. Uh, he is taking threes, only about two a game. And he's shooting 33%, which is passable and respectable. And yeah, and he's almost 90% from the free throw line. So it's, I just want to give it to DeMar because I think he's impacted winning the most. And I don't know if any of these other guys have an argument that warrants them over him. I don't know if he gets in in the actual voting but I feel like we need to reward him for the way that he's played this season and the step forward that he's taken in his game because he was, what, five-time All-Star in the East until he got traded. So he's been an All-Star before. It's just the Western Conference is, is deeper. And I would give him the nod over some of these younger guys who will have a ton of opportunity down the line to make the All-Star team, a Morant, Booker, Fox, SGA. Um, so we don't reward Conley, but I think we should reward DeRozan for the winning uh, and so that's why I have Demar as my all-star in that last spot. I don't know if you want to throw anyone else in there. No, in the it, it, it comes down to Booker versus DeRozan for me. If uh, you've had your eyes on Phoenix a lot more than I have. So if you're picking Paul over Booker for them, then uh, yeah, it is, it is nice to, you want to reward the number one team with maybe a little more. And so that's why we've got a Mitchell and a Gobert, uh, an Embiid and a Simmons, but then going down the ranks, I guess it happy to spread the all-star love a little more. So if, if the dust settles only split it between Paul and DeRozan and snub Booker a little in order to reward San Antonio, having a better season than expected, I, I can live with that. Great. So this is our Western all-stars. LeBron James, Jokic, Kawhi, PG, AD, Steph, Luka, Dame, Zion, Mitchell, Gobert, 
Paul. And then if Anthony Davis does not play, our replacement is DeMar DeRozan. And again, just LeBron, Jokic, Kawhi, AD, Steph, <laughs> Luka, Dame, Zion. I mean, Zion put in brackets for now. But the, that first list, just <laughs> wow. All right. So those are our all-stars. Uh, we look forward to hearing the announce coming out later this week. And that wraps up NBA Talk. We'll take a quick break and come back for some talking hockey. And we're back for some talking hockey. We had Hockey Day in Canada on Saturday, which I did not really catch much of. Um, it's hard to get communities involved when they're not allowed to be near each other, but uh, something to still celebrate because kids are getting out on the frozen lakes and backyard rinks and enjoying an outdoor activity, which is a lot safer. And, and hockey such a big part of Canadian culture that uh, it's been nice to see people getting through this by enjoying it through sport. And so something to celebrate for sure. Yeah. Um, surefire, surefire way to almost like guaranteed generate a tear in the eye for us is just tell some, uh, feel good yeah. story involving kids, outdoor hockey and adversity and, uh, hockey day in Canada, really just a way to bottle and market that, but a little bit, that's all right we did get to have six Canadian teams facing off each other to celebrate. So that is surely worthwhile. Love it. We will, but in fact, the day was not kicked off with the games. It was kicked off with news of a trade uh, between the Ottawa senators and the Carolina hurricanes. The Ottawa senators receive for Ryan Zingle for Alex Galchenyuk and Cedric Paquette. Um, this seems like another shakeup trade. I don't know how many of those Galchenyuk's been in now. Uh, it seems like he's still waiting to find the right situation for him to succeed. I, I At this point, I just don't know if he's ever going to be that guy people are hoping for him to be. Uh, but he does have another shot now in Carolina. Uh, shout out to the five Senators fans that bought Ryan Dezingle jerseys two years ago. You get to pull them back out of the closet again. Don't know why you would. Um, but yeah, I, I just, there's not much else to say about this trade, just a swap. Um, Senators won't get to access Zingle for a couple of weeks. So it'll be a while to see what sort of impact he has. Um, but yeah, there's that trade. The Senators, getting the zingle and they go on to play the Winnipeg Jets and uh and win by a score of two to one in a pretty sloppy game is what you get normally in in most sports when you play earlier in the day uh basketball usually those Sunday Sunday afternoon games are are a gong show and any of those early games in in London (laughs) in the NFL are usually not the most pleasant to watch but the Sens getting a win. Brady Kachuk with the uh, tip home late in third period. Love to see it as a Leafs fan because it it gives the the Jets an L and and helps keep us in the lead uh, as we uh, progress into the next game that happened on the day and that was the Leafs themselves taking the L to the Montreal Canadiens in the first period when the Leafs were winning and uh, and Mitch Marner had scored. Hab's Twitter was. <laughs> It's it was the is like people 
on fire, burning, screaming in the pits of hell, uh, looking to tear everything down, pulling their hair out. It was bizarre to watch, really, and, and they're freaking out. Uh, and then the Leafs turn in an inverse performance of what happened on Thursday night by falling asleep for two minutes. The Canadians score twice in succession and and steal the, this one from right under their noses as uh, they pull back closer in the race for first in the North Division. Tabernacle. <laughs> um, nothing, yeah. nothing, nothing about this game really suggested that the Canadians are the better team. I think the Leafs outplayed them. Uh, obviously, you can't win every single game, and, and the Leafs aren't going to do that, so I'm not too upset because I saw enough to be okay with the outcome of the game. Of course, it's frustrating when you lose to a rival, but we've still got seven more games left between these two teams who are going to be fighting for first, and I can't wait to continue to watch them. Yeah, thus far, the Leafs taking four points in our three matchups and the Canadians taking three points. So pretty much as close as you can be through three games. Leafs little higher in the division for now. We get a three-game stretch against the Senators this week, so hopefully a chance to let that offense flow, build a little more chemistry, and um, keep the winning going. I mean... The most, the biggest thing you can ask for your franchise is don't drop two in a row. If you can do that, you are going to have a fantastic season. And the Leafs have managed to do that thus far. So as long as we can bounce back and try and grab at least five of the six points on the table against the Senators, we should be in great shape for the next matchup against the Canadians, which I believe will be on Saturday. Our boy Joe Thornton will be back uh, this week, and so looking forward to seeing him back on the ice. It, it seems like he will be back on that top line with Matthews and Marner, uh, which just bumps Hyman down the lineup. Like you said, you were excited to see him uh, back on either either the second line or give that third line uh, a kick uh, as just everyone falls into a, a, a better role for themselves. Yeah, I mean, that second line looked like they might have found something that worked throwing Simmons on there. And uh, Hyman, probably the most similar players to Simmons you could ask for to fill that role. So there's certainly something there. I just, I feel like the game of uh, Mikheyev and Kerfoot is so similar to Hyman that that's such a nasty punishing lot fast speedy four checking powerful line you can throw out there i'd I'd love to see that especially come playoff time just like the perfect punch to throw out after the one two top scary four the thing that i would say is it does seem like zach needs to be on the line with two guys who can create i worry that him on a third line with two other guys similar to him he doesn't get the same opportunity. He just doesn't have the same skill level. Whereas if he plays, he fits in perfectly with our two top lines because you've got Matthews and Marner who can just set him up with empty empty net shot attempts. Whereas he's the guy who gets in into the dirt and digs out and rakes out pucks. Uh, and that's what he's perfectly designed for. So I actually would like to see him get a shot on that second line with uh, Tavares who works hard and then Nylander who just refuses to make contact with any thing besides the puck um 
yeah, I just think they need a little grit on that second line. So I actually wouldn't be opposed to Zach getting some time there before Wayne trains back. Yeah, I mean, you need a Riley to carry the puck through the red line and dump it for that third line to go to work, or you need McCabe and Kerfoot both have the legs to carry it in. Um, they just struggle with the consistency. You'll see them do great, like 70, 80, 90% of the way, and just like fluff it at the last hurdle before they get that forecheck going. So maybe just some reps for consistency, maybe switching up the breakout style being a little less puck possession when that line's on the ice i I, some some forms of chemistry just make me happy and that that's one of those lines that just like kind of sends a little thrill through or something (laughs) all right the hockey day in canada gets wrapped up uh with the canucks snapping their six game losing streak uh with a 3-1 win over the flames um they played really well. They outshot the Flames 48 to 20. Um, they just, this was the energy that they needed to give ownership uh, before the game backed Benning and backed Green. Uh, and I think that was the little confidence boost they needed. And uh, Vancouver's dug themselves a bit of a hole. But if Demko can heat up and show, a glimpse of what he looked like in the bubble. And we talked to this a ton, but uh, they definitely have the offensive firepower to, to get back in this race. So uh, we'll be interesting to see how Vancouver responds uh, now that they've snapped the skid. And on the other side, Calgary uh, continue to searching search for answers. Of course, they're still sitting in that four spot, but, uh, and got a great performance from Markstrom, but still have been struggling to put the puck in the back of the net. So we'll see what adjustments they will make moving forward. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you thought Vancouver thought they dug themselves out of a smaller skid last week against the Leafs. And that must have just, we've seen in 11 seconds, must just the confidence. I can't even imagine. Uh, no mistakes made this time staying much just no lapses to let such a thing repeat it's i think there's a point though just the puck doesn't bounce your way for so long but eventually there will be games where the puck does bounce your way they had it bouncing their way against toronto last week they had it bouncing their way against calgary saturday night can they go out and get it when in the more 50 50 games and the early answer is no, this team just isn't deep enough. I, I did pick them to make the playoffs and I've kind of dropped that. So we'll see if they can prove me wrong, but it, it's going to, it's going to take a consistent effort. Like every team is going to have occasionally their night. It's, it's about going out and getting it when the puck isn't working for you, when the team isn't falling flat and struggling to score. So We'll see. All right. That wraps up our hockey talk. Have a couple final notes to go through uh, before we wrap things up on the show. The first of which being JJ Watt and the Houston Texans have agreed to part ways and uh, release the uh, one of the top defensive players of the last decade. Uh, one of three players to record a hundred sacks in their career. Um, he's got a ton of potential suitors. Uh, one of which being the Pittsburgh Steelers, who currently have both of his brothers on their roster. Uh, other suitors, like 
at least 11 teams interested in JJ. I think if he's not saying this still the same dominant pass rusher that he used to be, he's still an incredibly smart player. He bats down a ton of balls at the line of scrimmage and will come up with a couple key plays because he just knows uh, opposing teams so well and what they want to do to him. Uh, you saw that a couple times this year in the Thanksgiving game, he had a, a, a batted ball and, and a fumble recovery. And just, he's a guy that maybe you don't have him playing every play now, but you can rotate him in as a pass rusher on third downs and, and maybe get some production from him. And so it will be really interesting to see where he goes. Uh, and yeah, poor Houston, man, they continue to lose their stars. I think Deshaun Watson's the only guy left, but they lost Springer, Harden, uh, who else? Garrett Cole, uh, JJ Watt now, DeAndre Hopkins, and Watson's just... asked, or um, yeah, Watson, he has asked out. I just don't know if it's going to happen because quarterbacks are so valuable in the football, National Football League. But, uh, yeah, another, another Houston guy exits, and uh, a lot of those teams now looking to be in rebuild mode. So, uh, shout out to Houston. It's not the only bad thing happening to them right now. There is an incredible winter storm going through the United States right now. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, but there are 2 million people in Texas without power because t- wind turbines have been frozen because they're just like, are the infrastructure is not built to experience this yeah. kind of snowstorm. I think it's six degrees in Northern Texas, 15 in Southern Texas. Like bizarre, uh, that's Fahrenheit for oh our Canadian listeners. Yes. It's very cold there right now. Uh, yeah, I know. Thinking for us is like, that is that's summer weather, 15 degrees Celsius. Uh, I think it was what minus 22 Celsius here. Okay. Uh, a couple of days ago, yeah. but yeah, it's uh so shout out to our listeners in Texas. Stay warm. Uh, hopefully you got enough data or Wi-Fi to listen to this today as you stay inside and, and bundle up. Welcome to the Canadian life. I, I'm sure it's not very pleasant for those who haven't experienced it as regularly as we do, but uh, we hope you're safe and we hope you're warm. So shout out to uh, our Texas listeners. Anything else? Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about uh, another kind of football. Uh, I saw a couple of highlights of Johnny Manziel returning to another football league as we saw that went so well in the NFL and CFL, which it, it did not. Um, the fan controlled football league. I don't know if you've had a chance to, you got to watch this because it is wild. It is basically, uh, I don't know if you've played Madden, like the arcade mode where you can just customize everything. And it's like five on five with the just most neon jerseys. And you have no idea what's going on. That's what this game is like. It's three on three pass rushing. So just three against three guys. Uh, There's like two wide receivers on each side. It's indoors. It, the field is like, half as wide as a regular football field and i think it's a little bit shorter and the scores go in the 40s and 50s and manzel had a play where he ran around for like 10 seconds then ran down the line of scrimmage uh broke a tackle and then got like flipped over and bounced into the padding walls that they have near the sides of the field just really bizarre um their conversions aren't kicks it's uh one-on-ones in the end zone between wide receiver and cornerback so the quarterback snaps it off of a stool, <laughs> which looked really weird. But then it's just a wide receiver going one-on-one. So he could slant or he could fade to the outside. Really bizarre concept. Um, but fan control football league, something to check out. I just saw a couple of highlights of that on my Instagram and thought it was really bizarre. Weird to see uh, 
Money Manziel, Johnny Football back uh, playing the sport that he was so famous for in college. And that's pretty much it for sports. Um, I wanted to let all our listeners, if you're not on NBA Top Shot yet, you should get on. This marketplace is growing really quickly. Uh, I got a gift from them for Valentine's Day yesterday, a Donovan Mitchell assist, the wraparound assist where he attacks the paint, uh, fires a pass out to Bogdanovich for an open three. I was able to sell that for 90 bucks US. So uh, basically got gifted 90 bucks from uh, our friends at NBA Top Shot, but yeah, get on it because it's it's definitely a fast-growing marketplace with some fun stuff for people to collect. It's not an ad. I just am excited about the platform. <laughs> it was an ad. Yeah. All right. Pitchers and catchers report in two days. Spring training is two weeks away in baseball. Looking forward to that. Really exciting potential for the Blue Jays season. And that is it for us here at uh, Sports Next Door. Uh, thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, Stay warm, stay safe. Love you guys. This has been our longest podcast ever. So happy family day to everyone in some parts of Canada. I know they don't celebrate in Quebec. Uh, Too busy with Jean-Baptiste Day. Uh, I think it might be President's Day or something in the US. If it is, enjoy it. If not, just America, Presidents. I don't know. Uh, Happy family day. Sports Next Door signing off.